restrained audience, film it and then don't use it. And that's like the yes, outside. Yeah. If we're going to do that, no, we'll no, do that's... that first. Yeah. But I mean, you know, don't use it if it's not good. I mean, but no, see now, there's where this is. But we've thrown it away. Already, this is. I mean, like if we cancel the show now, we'll still be throwing it away. Because it's all. I don't know. Probably. That's the way we tend to do it. You know, go through a thing and then come back. That's where we never actually do it. We've never actually done it. I think that the worst we should have is a documentary, which is a commercial enterprise. There's no reason, I think, why we shouldn't also get a show. Although none of us yet are happy with the idea of really doing it here. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with you. Yeah, it's fine. Come on, it's fine. It's alright. I think it's just not as good as it could be yet. Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Cham. And I'm John Stone. Well, we're starting in on days four through six of Get Back. Yes, numerically. We're moving on into the second week. As promised, we are starting in with our special guests. We're going to try and have special guests through each of the subsequent series of shows through, as we figured out, middle of January next year. <laughs> It's a journey. Okay. <laughs> so joining us this week, Alan Doss, uh, someone you may have heard of. Uh, he was in a little band called Galactic Cowboys a number of years ago, which Texas Monthly described as the band that should have been Nirvana. I thought you were going to say the band that is like the Partridge Family versus Metallica. If wow. it, Metallica <laughs> crossed Abbey Road, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, there's, there's a tape out there of you... Uh, Seeing Donna McKenzie to the tune of Eleanor Rigby. <laughs> Hi, my name is Donna McKenzie, and I am the afternoon show host on KHJK 1037 FM. You know, for me, Galactic Cowboys show was the loudest show I ever heard in my life. It could have been, you know, a venue or something, but it was loud. I mean, I liked it. Well, you know, it wasn't louder than the Who, so. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we weren't but, there. So. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd, I'd never heard the Who, so. <laughs> saw him once at the Astrodome that, that time but the last time you guys were at Fitzgerald's I guess about four years ago outside the building it was probably louder than it was coming off of the rooftop of Apple 
Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a badge of honor right there. <sighs> Loud's not always better, but you know. <laughs> we are going to uh, start in on day four. Day four, John Lennon was late. Yes. This is actually January 7th, the date. Yeah, yeah. The actual so, date is January 7th of 1969. Right. right. So it, it's moving <laughs> along. And yeah, Lennon's late. Paul said he was thinking about getting rid of him. <laughs> what do we think John was doing? He, he does come in and he's a little bit spaced out when we finally see him. You know, I, I don't know. We don't really know all this stuff. So I think sometimes the implication that John was always high is not necessarily correct. Agreed. Could have been doing something the night before, stayed up too late. Then you could go into things of like, hey, you know, maybe he was already feeling the vibe from Paul that he was kind of trying to lead the show. So he was already kind of being testy and maybe showing up a little late just to see what Paul would do, you know? Hard to know. Yeah. Something just as simple as staying up too late will make you feel lousy when you have to be there at 10, or I think he got there later but well and in fact Ringo says exactly that I'll admit I'm not feeling too good today (laughs) yeah you know I watched this and just felt like sometimes when people said well he looks stoned there he's just kind of staring off and listening to what's going on I wouldn't say well he's stoned Um, Yeah, I think that's certainly some of it but these three days you know I was talking to someone who uh, who isn't as big a fan of as any of us are and he was saying you know it's so hard to get through that first part and, and i think that you know that's part of the deal is we don't have john cracking up and, and making his jokes just yet i mean there's a little bit of that but he's off somewhere else he's, he's in his own head whether that's because he's stoned or whether that's because i don't want to be here yeah it's hard to say I never got the vibe that he didn't want to be there. I think he was just being passive to see how it was going to go because I'm not sure of the exact timeline, but it, it couldn't have been much later than when they finished up all the White Album stuff. So, I mean, they were probably all semi a little burned out to begin with. I, you know, I don't know, but there was a lot going on. I also think, so what if you've done some great albums, but it's all been overdubs and different arrangements it had been three years since they'd played as a band. Yeah. And so that had to be daunting. It's like, okay, you know, <laughs> we haven't done this in a long time. Yeah. Well, and in yeah. fact, Paul says exactly that. And within two sentences, he says, well, well, I'm here because I want to do a show. And then he says, well, I'm kind of scared. I think I've gotten a bit shy. It's yeah. like, well, which is it? Or is it both? Yeah. Yeah, there was definitely some of that back and forth going on as far as being indifferent on what they had planned to do. Probably didn't help much that the director kept butting in and (laughs) pressing them on information or what they were going to plan on doing or what he wanted to do. And it's like just added pressure to what was already going on. Yeah, for the very beginning, Paul goes, we're not going out of the country. Yeah. And he continues to press that. I mean, well, and, and then right here, you know, he's uh, he's kissing ass just a little bit. I think that you all have decided to do a show, and it should be the best show, because you are the Beatles. You aren't four jerks. Yeah, thank you, Michael. We, we really <laughs> we really don't need you to tell us that. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, right. Maybe that's why they're constantly reading fan magazines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're trying to understand ourselves. While they're waiting, we get 
what is to a lot of people effectively the highlight of this whole series. We see the birth of Get Back. And also the birth of Get Up and Go by the Royals. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing to watch. You almost want to help him along. <laughs> no, not that lyric. The original lyric stuff was pretty bizarre, but man, I guess they were doing the whole linen advice anyway of just start singing words and maybe something will make sense or you know start clicking so as john reminds us frequently john stone how you start is you start with just coming in with temp words just just syllables which sound right does get to some of the phrases which find their way into the final song pretty quickly yeah the thing that surprised me was not being that well read in the tapes i always thought that the whole thing about commonwealth and you know no pakistanis that that came first and that then it evolved into get back i had no idea that they started with that kind of and then tried to change the song into something topical that was pretty revealing mildly shocking yeah Uh, just like wow that's what sparked it i mean he had the music thing going start humming some melody but but lyrically that was like wow yeah you know he had the first verse pretty quickly and so that was just a great thing to watch as someone who spends most of his time playing the bass these days how hard is it to strum on the bass like that it's pretty easy on a hofner yeah, I mean, Hoffners are acoustic-y as opposed to normal electric basses. Yeah. Still with the somewhat piano strings on a guitar, it's still, you know, you can kind of do it better up on the uh, the first and second string when you start hitting that fourth. It's pretty, uh, pretty blah, 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 you know. Yeah, you could take your thumb off. <laughs> Surprised you didn't actually pick up the guitar. Strum on what you got at the moment. And George joins in pretty quickly, and, and Ringo kind of finds the beat pretty quickly also. Maybe it was the tone of that when he was playing that led him to that melody. You know, it's that deep sounds. Maybe he wouldn't have found that on the guitar. Talking about Ringo, especially in that instance, it seemed like a lot of the stuff they initially started working on or whatever, he was just playing generic stuff because even on Get Back, he was just playing a, you know, a normal beat with the hi-hat and snare and what wound up becoming snare rolls through the whole song, driving it. It's definitely cool to see how he evolves, too, from just basic generic stuff into actual parts, you know, and very cool. Well, you know, the the difficulty in doing this kind of thing is that there are things that are coming in the days we're not discussing yet. But, you know, that's kind of the discussion that George and Paul have is, do you play with it until everybody evolves into their parts? Or do you, you know, start assigning things early? Or, you know, how do you do this? Yeah, like uh, on the Don't Let Me Down stuff early on, 
Paul seemed to be getting pretty uh, mildly irritated that the rest of them weren't like jiving on his background vocal parts there on the bridge and stuff. I'm in the camp of I'm glad they shot it down because it was horrible to me. I hated it. Yeah, he was taking it to a place that was like, now it's more cabaret almost, you know. (laughs) It had some of that till there was you kind of feel. Yeah, and yet John wanted to go, don't let me down. You know, he wanted to come screaming in. So he had a whole different view of the song. Yeah, if and when you're ever in a band and all that, most bands go through that. So everyone's got ideas. and But it's good because, you know, especially if there's a couple of ideas, you know, the best one can usually win out and, and be good. So, yeah, you know, that's part of the creative process. Well, I, I've had a, a thought for a long time that if you've been in a band for any length of time, you've been in the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because you go through all that stuff, you know, if you're a creative band. You look at Spinal Tap, how much different is a lot of Spinal Tap than what's going on here? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, my, minus the, the stage stuff, of course. <laughs> well, even with the, even the stage stuff, had they gone to Tunisia, would it have ended up like Stonehenge? Spinal Tap wasn't necessarily made up. It was based on real yeah. events, maybe. Yeah, that's true. Made up, but off of real events that... So that's why everyone can relate to it. It's outrageously yeah. funny. Well, and that's also why, even if you're not a big Beatles guy, anyone who's ever been in a band seems to have positive things to say about this film. Yeah. You yeah. Know, Jamie, who was supposed to be here with us, says, it's not nearly long enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can imagine there's more coming on the back end. At least there's a couple more hours, at least. So they've told us. Paul goes through a couple takes of Get Back while he's constructing it, although we only get sort of a compressed version here, enough to give you an idea of what's going on. And then John shows up. Yeah, but, you know, it was kind of interesting. And I know that, you know, Lennon-McCartney was a brand. But, you know, Paul was working with George, and George had some ideas until John shows up. And then Paul's like, now I'm working with John. (laughs) And, you know, George kind of goes along with it that's obviously the way they worked for a while but it was kind of weird george has the guitar part moving along nicely by the end of that session yeah did he want to give up the lead <laughs> so once john shows up as you mentioned you know it's back to discussing well what are we doing they they don't know yeah uh, here's where paul sort of brings in the idea which is going to show up again on the rooftop. We could make it like a request. We should do the show in a place we're not allowed to do it. You know, like we should trespass, go in, set up, and then get moved, and that should be the show. So, I mean, you know, if you put us in the Houses of Parliament, playing in the main gallery at the Houses of Parliament, and getting forcibly ejected, still trying to play your numbers, and the police lifting you. I think that's too much for She came in through the bathroom window. <laughs> Scuffling a cop with boots and truncheons and all that. You have to take a bit of violence. I think that's too dangerous. I don't know if it's ironic. It's certainly interesting that that was in his head from for the first week. Yeah. But, you know, later on, you'll see the reaction he gives when the cops actually show up. So, <laughs> yeah. This worked out great. Also, in this conversation uh, was, you know, discussions about breaking the band up. And I keep saying, yeah, well, I'd like to do this, this and that. And we end up doing something again that nobody really wants to do. <laughs> if this one turns into that, it should definitely be the last for all of us. That was kind of interesting. It, it makes you wonder 
what got them back around for Abbey Road. But I mean, again, that was just what they did. Yeah. You know, I would imagine that after they were through with the rooftop and the whole bit, they pretty much went right back into Abbey Road and, and did the record of all the stuff they were working on during those sessions or part of it. There were final get-back sessions in February. You got George recording something in Old Brown Shoe and All Things Must Pass. And then they, they continued uh, working on I Want You. A bunch of these songs were just sort of moving forward to wherever they were going to go. They didn't know where they were going to go. Yeah. Well, it was still an open project. And I think their plan was to make the album with 14 songs which they didn't have yet. So perhaps it was kind of, they were going on to record, but they weren't going to tape, you know, they weren't going to have it recorded like that. I'm, I'm very interested to know what exactly they worked on and what they didn't, because I was mildly blown away right out of the gate when the, all the credits and all the, the intro stuff, we actually get into the, into Twickenham and stuff and, and, John sitting there playing what child of nature, jealous guy, you know, and all this stuff. And I, you know, I'm not, wasn't really counting days on the actual, uh, yeah, the yeah, for or sure. whatever. But, you know, at some point McCartney comes up and goes, Hey, John, you going to contribute anything? And, <laughs> and I'm going like, well, what did I just see <laughs> out of the gate? Did they work on that or did they, not, you know, I mean, that to me, that's a big question. I thought John brought in some stuff, even later working on the mustard and polythene Pam stuff, which became a part of the medley on Abbey Road. You know, I mean, it's just bizarre. And give me some truth. I mean, which Paul clearly knew. <laughs> yeah. John had written it in India, so he certainly heard it somewhere along the way, although it, I guess it never got finished enough that it wasn't part of the Easter demos. They didn't have lyrics going into the January sessions, the Twickenham sessions. So, you know, maybe it was just a tune at that point. Yeah. With all these things, it's interesting to to see what little fragment they decide is a song and what little fragment isn't a song. They make those choices because some things they'll develop into a tune, but there's clearly stuff laying around that will become something that they chose not to act on. Well, I carry that weight. You know, Paul was envisioning that as a complete (laughs) song, a a complete song for Ringo. Right. Ringo has to have a let it be song. You know, they go through some conversations. One of my favorite bits there is. What's the biggest charity in the world? I don't mean in terms of like polio, but what's the most charitable thing anybody could do? They say, don't they say, charity begins at home. (laughs) So we're doing the George's house. (laughs) There's another comment where they are talking about getting a divorce. And John says, who'll get the children? <laughs> and Paul goes, Dick <laughs> <Yeah>. James. <laughs> so it moves from there into their conversation about Brian, which has always been one of their more honest conversations. Yeah. Admitting that they don't really know anything other than making records. You know, it, they don't manage themselves well because they had Epstein as a figure to rebel against, not yeah. strongly, but it, it, he would exert some discipline and, and they'd go along somewhat reluctantly and do hard days and nights. They would always succeed in, in the next project. It took that management and without anybody there, oh my Dad, God. Daddy's gone away now. Right. Yeah. To me, that was a very revealing moment 
that they all probably already knew, especially after going through the White Album and each one of them kind of doing their own thing. But in that moment, they kept saying Mr. Epstein, like out of major respect and realizing that that's what's tearing us apart. There's no leadership or nothing. Paul doesn't want to, but tries to fill the void and it ain't working. You know, it's uh, to me, that's just making it totally obvious is that's why they broke up because no one could fill Epstein's shoes, not Paul's future father-in-law, nor Alan Klein or any of it. It's just like, that was the realization right there, which lets Yoko off the hook. And the truth is McCartney was a hundred percent right. If they'd gone with the Eastman's advice, they would have been much better, but that idea was so wrong. (laughs) You know, how would he expect his bandmates to go? Oh, so your your brother-in-law and your father-in-law are going to run the band. The finances, maybe, but as far as someone who's actually going to provide a direction for the band, that would never work. Yeah. Yeah. They wanted to go with Klein because he just got the Stones, a big, huge new contract for future recordings and all that to where they wanted to cash in on that, too. Lennon said, you know, the Beatles made a lot of millionaires. Same thing when... Dick James makes an appearance. You can tell no one he wants to talk to him. And he's just in there trying to sell old songs to him. (laughs) Well, they already bought him. He was just uh, there to show them, oh, here's what I bought for Northern Songs. And that's cool. That's what a publisher does. That, you know, it's one way that McCartney made all the money on MPL was buying up song copyrights. But when he says something about Northern Songs and, Paul makes an offhand comment and James step. We are substantially involved. McCartney's like, no comment. Speaking of that, look through the closing credits. Everything through rubber soul is now credited as being published by MPL. Yeah. Let's see. That's 65. Yeah. That's 60. It's, it's the 56 years since original publication. It was never clear what Paul's deal with Sony was, but now it is. It's like, oh, MPL actually owns the publishing rights on all of this now. That's great. Now you can buy the island. (laughs) So once they finish with their discussions or or they table their discussions for a little while, they go into Maxwell's Silverhammer, and the other three don't seem too upset at this song, despite the fact that they would later have a great disdain for it. You know, part of the disdain was the perfectionism of McCartney's version of it. You know, I think Lennon said he tried and tried and tried to make it a single. It would never would be. So, you know, I think that's part of it. But it is kind of hokey. I I noticed as they continue to do Maxwell through the day, whenever they do that little whistle part, he always says, very good, lads. (laughs) You know, yeah, that's nice, fellas. And you just see Lennon like, God, rolling his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Good thing about it is that it took all the hate away from Obladio Bladoff. It was a new target for once. <laughs> yeah. But in my opinion, Lennon saved that song. So With the piano intro? Yeah, that was huge. And then another one of my favorite quotes. Well, we should get a hammer. And an anvil. See you yeah. later. It's like, I, no, I'm not going to tell you where or how to do this. Just go <laughs> do it. And then he walked back in with it. Half an hour later, it's like... Yeah, yeah. you almost get the sense that Mal was the hero through the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) He was good. He was everywhere, man. (laughs) Great. And we've also learned that 
Mal's Diaries will be coming out uh, in two years. Oh, yeah. I've read that. That'll be great. That's pretty amazing. The stuff I've read, it's, it's really good. So, you know, you get all sorts of interesting detail. Yeah, there'll be a full biography, and then yeah. there will also be uh, apparently a coffee table book featuring his archives and his <laughs> diaries. Yeah, that'll be great because he's, I can recall at least two instances where his memory is different than Paul's. Right. And he was there. And if he's c- keeping a contemporary diary, <laughs> yeah, you know, you'd go, well, Paul can't remember, which we already know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So then at the end of the day, we see Peter Brown, and that's nice. Yeah. You know, one thing that I caught was um, they play the acetate for Across the Universe. A unique mix, because it doesn't have the birds on the opening yet. Right. Yeah. But it is faster. So is is the acetate too fast? Because when it goes to the band actually playing it, they've changed the key. Or it's in the key it's always been, and the acetate's faster. Not sure. I believe the original version was faster than the one on Let It Be. Obviously, they slowed it down, so... Whether that original acetate was faster than what we heard with the the bird track and the whole thing, but it, it sounded pretty much like the original to me without the sound effects and stuff. Yeah, and then you can you know you can also get in conspiracies of you know hey was the record player you know, <laughs> was it in strobe was it, you know was it playing fast blah 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 and, well and, and also the acetate jump. may have not have been cut quite correctly. That true. That's true. <laughs> that ends with Nothing's gonna change my world. I wish it fucking would. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so the end of the day is them uh playing rock and roll music, which Peter Jackson has chosen to cut to the white suits Budokan version, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that was a, a nice cut and the audio is great. And the video is great. I mean, you know, every time we've seen that, there was something slightly off. The image got a little bit wavy, even the original tapes. And he fixed all of that. But, yeah, cutting back and forth. And while it's not the highest of energy performances, they're having fun, and it's a good performance. Yeah. Yeah. I think they were playing in a lower key, though. (laughs) I don't think John could scratch it out like he used to at least <laughs> being lazy in a rehearsal but. we danced out they had a tango I managed it to a mambo I took it better than a lambo I started doing a little samba I started playing that rock and roll music but still, we like to think of everything in Twickenham as being all of this, these rehearsals which are not worthy of coming out that wasn't too bad it was great to see a fun moment jamming it out. It's just weird. There's missing pieces still with all the footage that you just kind of wonder. At least we got a, a much bigger picture now of what happened, and it was actually 
to me, ultimately a good thing and not a bad thing. So. Oh, oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah. even even if we get the full fifty or sixty hours, that's yeah. only fifty or sixty hours out of yeah. uh, one hundred and sixty. You know, it's yeah. at most a third of everything that went on. I mean, the only real bad part to me overall is just that they put that time limit on themselves and and it put them under pressure for no reason really. But you know. But that's what they did, and and so it, it caused them to work faster than they normally would, per se, you know. I think what we've all kind of decided is that they just really should have waited until after Magic Christian. Yeah. They're just taking those two months and, you know, yeah. done their own thing, maybe write some stuff, get ready for this project, and then yeah. come, you know, March or April, okay, we'll start this. Yeah. And it's, then run that for a month, six weeks. Uh, you know. The work they did there, though, it wasn't a waste of time because, you know, later in the movie, we see that, man, they really got on it once they got back to Apple. It paid off. It may not have seemed like Twickenham was this great part of the thing, but it was essential as to moving to Apple and then getting real busy because, man, they were they were tightening up then and it paid off, man. It was great. That was what I told my friend who was saying, well, you know, this first, the first part is just so depressing. It's like, well, you got to just power through it because you, it's the first part, which makes the second and third so satisfying. Yeah. It's not a constant showbiz kind of thing at all. It's, you know, this, this is how it went. And the work at Twickenham led them to have a really solid basis so that when Billy Preston walks in, he was playing with a, you know, a band that had a lot of it there. They were ready for the arrival of Billy. So, so okay, so you move on to, uh, to day five. This also starts with a new song. George and Ringo are, are sitting around. They're talking about a science fiction thing that, that was on TV the previous evening, although, although they're not actually talking about this science fiction thing. I got the impression they were talking about it almost an entire evening of entertainment. There was a program immediately following uh, Immortality, Inc. It was the name of the of the science fiction show they, they were watching. It was a kind of a, a Logan's Run type of thing where as people aged, they could buy bodies from younger people and transfer themselves into them. Anyway, that's, that, that's, that's, that's what that movie was about. But George had watched this film, and then afterwards there was, unlike American television... We got something interesting. You got something that people will want to watch. Then we're going to stick a, a documentary afterwards about the royal family, and not even the British royal family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, British TV. Yeah, and, and so the, uh, somewhere during this documentary, they show the this royal family going off into a waltz. They they end up in a ballroom and 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 they're and they're dancing along to this waltz, right? Which inspires George to compose something in a waltz. That was when he came up with the I Me Mine thing, and he was just singing I Me Mine along to that waltz. Yeah. And that's like, yeah, I like that. And so he composed his own. Right. So he's said the song is about the ego. Was he already feeling that at this point? <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> you know, another thing that has interested me is that George seems to be like, going home and writing a song and going home and writing a song every night. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he'd said the previous day, I don't really want to use any of my songs in the show. I mean, you know, and we know that he'd been playing a lot of the all things must pass material. 
Hear Me Lord and uh, right. certainly some of the stuff which ended up never being released for a long time. But it's like, all of this is too slow. None of this will play on the roof. And besides, you guys just aren't going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> George was entering another plane, ideas and creativity and probably why he eventually left there for a while because you can only hold somebody down so long. I mean, it's just like you talked about when George was working with Paul on Get Back, and when John shows up, then he reverts to John and kind of pushes George away. I mean, that's just the typical thing, you know. And George, after while my guitar gently weeps and all that, he's like really becoming viable as a writer. And to get kind of blown off, you know, is just just too much at that point. Probably one of the biggest regrets Paul has is not pursuing All Things Must Pass at the moment because I mean, what an incredible song you know yeah and that could have been a Beatles song and you know they had it on the list as late as the day before the rooftop you know George Martin reads off this list of 11 or 12 songs and he tells them that okay you've almost got an LP here and one of them is All Things Must Pass yeah no one's fighting the plane we know that John was not a fan of I Me Mine. Right. <laughs> and and that couldn't have made George feel particularly happy either. Yeah. Was it Lennon, though, that took it to 4-4 time there in the off the waltz? And when it starts driving after the verse, you know. Ah, me, me, my, da 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 you know. No, I think it was Paul. Was it Paul? Okay. Yeah. Even Hogg at that point is like, you dancing here, it defines this song. And so we'll film that. Yeah. The rock part of it saved it because out of the gate, Harrison wasn't even singing it proper in my book. You know, he was just kind of noodling it out. Yeah. But once they really performed it and those sections got put in there, then it made it a rock song and it worked. I love it. Yeah, for sure. That's very cool. It wasn't Maxwell's Silver Hammer, though. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. There's a discussion about, once again, what are the sets going to look like? They seem to listen to Paul. It's like, okay, we're going to do it in Twickenham now. We'll build a set and, and do it here. They're talking about plasticine blocks right. and two levels. Yeah. Which John wants after they're finished. Mm-hmm. I, I guess he was already thinking of Plasticono Band. <laughs> <laughs> I love their description of it. Around the Beatles 1969. <laughs> right. That's exactly what it was. Could they find those original guys to clap out of time <laughs> behind them? <laughs> yeah. Just before that, they'd gone through kind of what they knew. They, they did a rock version of Two of Us. And, and then Don't Let Me Down, and I've Got a Feeling, and Maxwell's. And Stand By Me, Paul singing it. Right. Yeah. It's not the Benny King version. <laughs> Alan, what did you think when you watched that guitar fall down? <laughs> Guitar fell over, Paul. A guitar fell over. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was <laughs> slightly painful. But yeah. back, then, back then, the guitar is only worth a couple hundred bucks. So even though it was a Beatle guitar. So right. As far as just a Les Paul or whatever, it's like, hey, right. you know. I leapt for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, the guitar. Yeah. 
they didn't have guitar stands. <laughs> All through this film, you see their guitars just laying around on the floor or leaned yeah. up against something. No tuner in sight. <laughs> right. They didn't even have music stands for the lyrics. <laughs> they had clipboards that they threw on the floor. Until Ringo tried to put one together, but yeah. that's later. Yeah, well, it's because, you know, Lennon covered the mic with a, his lyric sheet. They're talking about crowd control, and, and George Martin, the the former military man, oh, we'll, we'll just put a barbed wire entanglement down front. I, <laughs> I love that. Right. Again, I, you know, I said this last week, but I was actually taken aback by how often George Martin was involved in this. He's in a lot of shots, that's for sure. And making suggestions. And What can I? John did an interesting version if you win again. And George Martin, he always looked very clean. <laughs> Truly. He was almost a matinee idol. Maybe he was wasting his time sitting there behind the board. Well, either that or now we understand how he was able to uh, convince his secretary to run away with him. <laughs> yeah. You can see that they have uh, a similar sense of humor, George Martin and the band. So I can see how that started up instantly. Then, for some reason, after saying, oh, well, maybe we'll do it in Twickenham, they then turn around and come up with other ideas yet again. This is where they talk about, why do we want to just go and do it in EMI? Because George was saying, I don't want to do a live show. So it's like, okay, well, we'll just record an album. And it's like, well, well, why do we want to just go be stuck in EMI again like we always have been? Which is a little weird. You're not going to do a show, and you don't want to do this documentary anymore. Why don't you just take it into your regular studio with your regular producer? Well, I don't think initially they thought they were making an album per se. Paul is always looking for a, a hook or a, a thing, and he just didn't want to just do another album. He wanted to play. He wanted to create a disturbance. I mean, he, he just wanted something to, to make press. Yeah, I would just say, you know, after the whole wide album thing, it's like literally wanted to get back to what they used to do, play live and, and try to get the magic back, so to speak, uh, not musically, but just personally together as a group to keep the vibe going and keep the band together. So, Yeah, and, and that's what Ringo says to Michael Lindsay Hogg. It's like, you know, you only think we're breaking up because you've seen us being grumpy. Well, we've been grumpy for the last 18 months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. While Ringo's having this discussion with Michael Lindsay Hogg, behind them, Paul is starting to figure out Let It Be on the piano. Yep. And then Ringo actually turns to the camera and says, you know, here's your show. See, I've watched an hour of him just playing the piano. Me too. Uh, <laughs> so great. I wonder how recent that development was because I guess before then Paul was coming in with his songs already kind of worked out. And so the idea that he would just kind of play stuff would be new to Ringo to some degree. I would think, you know, that he would sit in front of the piano and play song after song after song. Great talent. Well, and that may be some of the white album thing. That's what George Martin didn't like. He didn't like the endless hours of bringing songs together. He wanted them to come in with, okay, we're ready. Yeah. Let's just record it. Well, it's weird that that would be the thing because that was, as far as I know, the only album they ever did that kind of extensive demo for. So a lot of those songs were somewhat worked out. 
Yeah. Yeah, but, except that they did very much the same thing they did with the Get Back stuff during the White Album sessions. That's why they were in the studio for hours on end. You know, all that rehearsing at Twickenham just lets you know how difficult it was for them to make the White Album because, you know, <laughs> they weren't even all playing together, you know. Right. All right. and John couldn't have been further apart, not playing on each other's songs and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just bare bones acoustic stuff from India coming in and having to actually make songs, band songs out of them. So yeah, create an arrangement for it. Yeah. And, you know, so. by then by the time they were ready to hand it off to George Martin, it's like, well, okay, I've been sitting here eating my Toblerone and reading the newspaper for, yeah. for seven hours. I'm glad you finally get around to, to involving me. <laughs> but definitely with Let It Be and the piano songs Paul was writing, he was definitely working that out at home because that ain't something he just came off the cup with. Like, a, you know, get, oh, back. Sure. get back. He just started strumming. But this, he had already worked it out. It's just a matter of lyrics and some basic fine tuning of, of structure. I don't think he quite completely finished it yet. I mean, you know, he he had no. chord structure and and he no. may have known where verses and choruses are going, but he didn't have lyrics. And, yeah. and, and he was still playing around with the song per se. I can't re fully recall, but as he was playing that, I could have swore I heard him say Mother Mary. Uh, yeah, he did. Right. Well, see, the the rumor was, and even Mal Evans at one point said, you know, it was originally uh, Brother Malcolm. And there is some video of Paul singing that, I think. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Mal always said the dream was about me. It wasn't about his mother. Well, but I mean, it had been Brother Malcolm when he first had the first inkling of the song right. during the White Album sessions. Exactly. Uh, you know, right. I think he did have a dream about his mother. Maybe after that, it may have even been, you know, one of these nights. Yeah, it was uh, always my understanding. Malcolm was in the dream. <laughs> Considering how omnipresent Mal was in their lives in general, it may well have been. Yeah, who knows? But it's just one of those interesting tidbits of... If that's what Mal says, too, that that's what it originally was. So, Well, again, we'll, let's see when we get the diaries. That's right. So, okay, we'll do it in Twickenham. <laughs> no, we're not going to do it in Twickenham. We'll go somewhere in England. No, we're not going to go somewhere in England because, you know, the weather's awful and raining every day. So now they're back to, well, let's go overseas somewhere. Let's, let's get on the QE2. Let's go to France. Let's go to Russia. And they all get code names. Yeah. I think we've got to oh, get... Russia, that'd be great. No, 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 that's Ringo's code name. He's Russia. Russia. Here's Franz coming in here in the lab. Franz, I can't go to France. No, 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 <laughs> that's your code name. Oh, wow. That's your code name. Well, it's because Michael Lindsay Hogg was, what, 16? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he liked to play spy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole cacophony of, let's go to Tunisia. Let's go to Tunisia. We're not leaving the country. Let's go to Tunisia. Think of the Arabs. You know, we're not leaving the country. Uh, no, there'll be a great helicopter shot. I'm not leaving the country. You know, God. So they talk about the QE2. George says, you know, we can't even get Fender to give us some free amps. How are we going to get the QE2? <laughs> right. How are you going to get a ship in, in a couple of days? You got the American Navy for half. I was there, yeah. yes. But Rio had the, the perfect follow-up. Yes, I know, but they were passing by and you'd only used them for a few hours. Yeah, I've seen it, John. I went the to the premiere. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were great. <laughs> so it would be tough to get a, a ship for free, the QE2. <laughs> uh, even Magic Christian didn't get it for free. They just managed to steal some shots of it. Yeah. 
uh, we move on to day six, and, and you'll notice, you know, the the argument with uh, George was on day four, and it really hasn't come up since. Uh, we've been through days four and five, and you know, while the, there's tensions there, they haven't gone back to that argument in any significant way. I get confused sometimes because I th- I think in dates, and when you say four or five, it's like. No, that was really. the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> I have adapted the Peter Jackson way of numbering on I these days, see. just because that's that's what he does. Uh, peer pressure. <laughs> okay, so was it the sixth? The argument was on the Monday. Yeah, that was, the and sixth. we've now been through the Tuesday and the Wednesday. Right, and, and like you say, it really hasn't bubbled to the surface again yet. Maybe there's some resentment there, but even that, I don't really see a whole lot of that coming to the fore here. No, we only know it because we know the story, but I I don't see any hidden aggression. So we go to January 9th, which is for you, what, day six? The Thursday. Okay, or January 9th. This is the first time we really see Linda coming into the studio with Paul. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he has to introduce her to the director, so she didn't come for that full week, I guess. And this is the first time we get uh, Long and Winding Road. And another Paul day. Has- <laughs> he does the whole first verse of another Yeah, day. I don't think he has anything beyond that on another day, but No. Yeah. But that's what I was talking about. You know, what fragments of songs do they go well I'll finish this and which songs do they leave behind? And that's just an interesting process to me. The thing I found most interesting about that segment was uh how Mal was suggesting lyrics and stuff yeah. to Paul. And then I just recently had found out that Mal had had done the same thing with Paul on fixing a hole, and he was supposed to get a writing credit, and he never did. So now it just it just makes sense that Mal was probably doing a lot to help and never got credit for it, and that's really a sad affair in my book. It is, but you know that that's kind of the the changing aspect of of the industry because in today's world. George Harrison would be a, a composer on a lot of that stuff. And he just wasn't. It was kind of, there's this brand of Lennon McCartney, and then there's the B brand of George Harrison. Yeah. I bet it's just the kind of thing where, because Paul and John were always 50-50 in the writing when someone else would join in, it was just natural to bounce off of everybody in the studio, including Mal, but, you know, it was just the standard. It was a Lennon-McCartney composition. Right. That's the way it always was, even because you know George had to have some input with their arranging or writing parts and stuff. I mean, they weren't always just told what to play, you know, and that's where yeah. all the resentment came from. A lot well, of and it. a lot of the same sort of thing we know went back, you know, even with Eleanor Rigby. You know, Paul had lyrics and everyone else would just kind of chip in. Pete Shotton, John Lennon's best childhood friend, claims that he was the one who came up with the idea that, oh, well, they should come together at the end. Yeah. You know, Eleanor Rigby and Father McKenzie. And it's like, yeah. so lots of people were always suggesting lots of things, which which did end up in the final song. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Harrison um, said that the whole harmony thing on I Feel Fine was his idea. I think he even says in the interview, it's like the holy Lennon-McCartney partnership. It's a rare thing for people to get credit on something they're like adding to a song. I mean, the only lawsuit I can remember 
really ever happening was uh, the Procol Harum thing. A whiter shade of pale was released in 1967, went on to become a worldwide hit, selling 10 million copies and earning huge royalties for Procol Harum's singer. The original organist, Matthew Fisher, claimed he'd also played an important part in creating the song and went to court to seek copyright recognition and backdated royalties. Today, he won his copyright claim against the lead singer, Gary Brooker, who promptly dubbed the ruling a darker shade of black. But generally, it's melody and lyrics. And so, I mean, the guys generally always had their melodies. So, but lyrically, <laughs> that's a big question mark at times. Yeah. Because that's pretty much what anybody was adding to. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody was saying, you know, you ought to change that to an A flat. Yeah. Um, well, unless you're Led Zeppelin, which not only stole uh, melody and playing style, they also stole lyrics. So, yeah. Well, yeah, what about that's a whole nother five years of podcast of Led Zeppelin? <laughs> <laughs> so, in, in the modern world, would George Martin get a credit? We've done several shows about the ever-changing role of a producer these days. Only they truly know, but I would bet there was definitely some uncredited lyrics and things that happened that, that we don't know about, you know. For sure. It doesn't take away from the general genius of everybody writing in the band, because, I mean... yeah. So, of Mal's contributions there, I like his thoughts on the weather obstacles. And then he wants to put more obstacles in, and Paul's like, no, no we have enough of those. <laughs> you know, enough obstacles without putting them in the song. <laughs> and we learned that Paul had, at that point at least, had never seen The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. Although, I guess maybe it just wasn't a British thing. Probably. I mean, I, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. So only when he became a dad coming to America with kids would he see The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. It definitely made its way over there if, if the Pink Floyd connections are true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That only would have been, what, about four years or so later? So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Not too that's far true. off. I would imagine psychedelia and uh, substances would cause people to look at The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. It's a good one. Then they move on to, to Golden Slumbers and carry that weight. Paul telling us that Golden Slumbers is an old English folk song. Right. He also j jokes, you know, he's been playing some of these cool chords and he jokes about, you know, doing a, a Songs for Swinging Lovers album. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and here's where we, we get the bit with, you know, Linda takes a picture and then he inserts the photo. And, and that's nice. Although we get a whole lot more of Linda doing that than we do Ethan Russell. For the, being the official photographer of these sessions, we yeah. don't see nearly as much of Ethan Russell as I would have imagined. Yeah, well, he wasn't going with a beetle. <laughs> yeah. so. And his daddy didn't know Kodak film. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't share a name. No. <laughs> Although, as we know, the, their actual name is Epstein, so. Yeah. No relation. And they changed it because they didn't want to sound as Jewish. So. It's a small world after <laughs> He goes on to carry that weight, although it's interesting that Golden Slumbers and Carry That Weight are already together, if not as a single unit, at least in his mind, these two songs go together. Yeah, yeah. That, that's true. Well, I get drunk tonight and then I said, 
But every time I try to do it, Mel, they don't say no, she more. You're gonna carry that weight. With Ringo in mind, it definitely didn't have as good a feel, or <laughs> he was trying to yell a submarine it or something. You know, maybe there's a reason why it didn't work. And then, of course, with Golden Slumbers, is you wanted to start it off like a fairy tale once upon a time. <laughs> yeah. Which also didn't work. Yeah. But. And I imagine George Martin probably had a, a key role, especially within the medley part of honing that into a more spacious, incredible work instead of just another marching uh Diddy for Ringo. John shows up. I like that he's wearing the same clothes. It's like, oh, I've decided to wear continuity clothes. <laughs> right. I was going to say that uh, to, with the carry that weight, I mean, you could hear Ringo most in the Abbey Road mix. So I mean, yeah. the, the intent stayed. And it could be just a matter of as they're working out a medley, anybody could have said, oh, what about that piece? <laughs> that carry that weight thing. That'll work. I personally am not as a big a fan of the medley on Abbey Road, but a lot of people are. So, so we move into the vaguely controversial piece. Um, you know, as we mentioned, Paul had some of the lyrics to get back, but it really wasn't about anything yet. And so he's looking at the paper, and somehow they get to the decision: oh, let's turn this into a bit of satire, which probably never would have worked. The Beatles weren't ever really a satire band yeah and what political songs had they done before that i mean that well, revolution of course yeah it, it is just kind of out of character it's just a weird topic well the enoch powell thing you know rivers of blood in the streets it's like wow uh, you know, maybe Paul was thinking, I did Blackbird and Blackbird was about civil rights. Let's take it a step further. Yeah, that's hard to say. But to me, I, it kind of came off vibey like they were more joking about the whole Pakistani thing and everything. I don't know. It just I, I wasn't taking it serious when I was sitting there watching it. It was just like filling the void. So you think those were just lyrics that were around? It's like, oh, well, these lyrics will work and we're working on the song. You know, let's just use them as temp lyrics. Yeah, I, I I would take it mostly like that, fill in the void until they could really hone in on what they were going to do, because we all pretty much know that wouldn't have passed anything but being on a record, because it was just so outrageously weird. Uh, yeah. And Peter Jackson did a, did a good job of explaining who Enoch Powell was and what this controversy was. Over the past 20 years, anytime this boot came up, you would always see a headline, Beatles were secretly racist. It's like, no. Yeah. That's yeah. not what it actually meant. Yeah. That then goes into Commonwealth, which is more kind of more of the same thing. Yeah. Because he goes from that into, oh, Enoch Powell. He's just riffing. There's nothing there. Yeah, which I guess kind of goes along with, with what Alan says. It's like, okay, they never had any serious intent, although they did get enough of the lyrics to scan. <laughs> And they did fit the song, yeah. at least in terms of, you know, these words go here. You know, maybe that's just something Paul was good at doing. Yeah, for sure. It definitely helped lock in the, the music side of it to where they could actually play it kind of as a song and have some yeah. structure to it. Because without the lyrics, then they just would have kept jamming the riff, and that ain't no fun. So. By the end of this day, they had the tune and they knew where the solo was going and kind of how they wanted it to be in the end. And, you know, he also reverted back to the original scratch lyrics and started filling them in pretty quickly after this. Yeah. 
So, you know, are the other songs that way? Is Get Back focused on so you can see the evolution of it? Would you find the same with all the other songs? You know, the evolution of Don't Let Me Down, which they cover to a degree, but Dig a Pony, all that stuff seems more fully arrived. They've already got the riff. Neither Let It Be nor Long and Winding Road. The music was probably... 50 60 percent complete but the lyrics he wasn't there yet no no he was still coming up with things and having mal scratch it out nope not that line yeah i would even go as far as to say you know it's just amazing to see that go from nothing to where it ended up but you know at the same time if it wasn't the beatles writing and performing it would the song really be as strong say, if the Stones did it or some other band. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, it's a great song, but is it a great song like some of the others, you know? <laughs> it's a, well, and that that's always yeah. kind of been Paul's opinion was yeah. the one that surprised him that was such a big hit and so memorable was Get Back. You know, he yeah. knew the other ones were, but Get Back, oh, yeah, that's yeah. a nice little song. I mean, the, I thought the B-side was a way better tune. <laughs> right. I would have liked more evolution of that if it was shot. Absolutely, um, yeah. Because at some point they came up with a part in the bridge. Don't. Da, da, yeah. da, da, da. It's like, I'd like to see who came up with that because that definitely changed that part of the song. Yeah. For me, like, that's an epic John song vocally, man. He is just getting it, just shredding it. <laughs> right. Yeah, other than the fact that it's, that it's terribly disrespectful to Cynthia, but oh well. Yeah. You know, what can you do? We get a little bit of came in through the bathroom window. And this is something that happened to me quite recently. And and at that point, that was something that happened to him quite recently. We've talked about that story before. And in light of the revelation we just got about Paul and and Synesthesia, his comment there, hello, this is Tuesday speaking. Is that Paul? I'd like to have a word with you. That's kind of cool. We skipped for you, Blue. Two days before he'd come up with I Me Mine, and on this day he'd come in with For You Blue as his written last night song. Right. He introduces it to Paul, and then John comes in, and they go through it again, and it comes together really fast. Yeah, the the slide is the only thing that isn't there yet, pretty much. Right. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, he, he says that the he wants the feel of it to be... Hawaiian, right? Well, the, the guitar... That, that lap was called a Hawaiian, but uh, yeah, it was just the idea of doing it like an old blues record where you, you weren't in tune necessarily. It, it just had a certain feel to it. Which does kind of inform John's final slide. I mean, you know, we've yeah. talked about that before as well. I mean, even the final version is just the slightest bit disorienting, although not nearly as much as the version that's in the box set. Maybe that was Glenn Johns or Phil Spector saying, well, I don't think that quite works. Yeah. Well, John was assessing it. I, I'm at my peak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Elmore James got nothing on this baby. <laughs> After uh, Bathroom Window, you got Mal and John talking a little bit about Elvis. You know, it was Elvis's birthday yesterday. 34. Considering George was, what, 25, soon to be 26? 34? Yeah, that's, that's an old man. <laughs> yeah. Elvis's birthday at yeah. oh, 34. God bless our gracious king. Oh, I seem to be catching up to it. <laughs> John at all of, uh, what, 28 at that point. Right. So they do a song that I've always liked, which was either known as Susie's Parlor or Susie Parker. 
and it was a jam song, but it had this great feel to it. And Peter Jackson used different parts of the song than was in the original Let It Be movie. But I really liked the song. It was like, why didn't they work on that one? Well, they should have. Why wasn't this on the box set? Yeah. They fool around some more. George does Bob Dylan tune. Mama, you've been on my mind. Yeah. And he does a really good version of it. And that song was not known. I mean, what hadn't been released was on a bootleg. And apparently George played it when he was with Dylan. Let's see. When did Quinn the Eskimo come out? Because Paul had played that in, in one of the previous days. I can't tell you when that was. But you think that was already out? No, not necessarily. There was a bootleg making the rounds that had those songs on it. Peter Jackson seems to have made the decision, rather than playing All Things Must Pass tunes, I'm going to put in George playing Dylan tunes, which, granted, it's about equal when George is playing his own original stuff and when he's playing Dylan stuff throughout the Nagras. As we get toward the end of the day, we we get what I call the George Formby version of Across the Universe. (laughs) They they love to clown on their own songs. Yeah. Then another slightly more developed version of Let It Be. And it includes the line from the Read the Record Mirror version, and you can actually see the copy of the Record Mirror sitting there on the piano. I like that. Uh, I wrote down that John had said, I've done all mine. Both of them. (laughs) Um, It was also interesting, going back to what we were talking about earlier, that Glenn John seems to be doing some arranging on Let It Be with Paul. Yeah. It's it's all happening a little bit too quickly with them both coming in at the same time. When do the drums first come in? Guitar, all that. Well, well, Glenn say first time they come in, he seems to be arranging this. Come on, <laughs> but he changed the the piano riff, which adapted, stayed into the song. And and you get John just pulling faces there. I don't know if he's seriously trying at comedy or if he was just bored. But Paul's up there singing earnestly, and maybe it's that same thing, like going all the way back to Hamburg when Paul would sing something that John considered vaguely smoochy <laughs> right i'm just gonna take the mickey out of this a little bit i'm gonna i'm gonna deflate it ever so slightly particularly with the cameras on him are you talking about when he's mouthing the words yeah he does that for the next several days yeah he so. was doing that with the i got a feeling too yeah, yeah. that first line man was hilarious when he said that <laughs> <laughs> laugh aligned with lennon <laughs> that brings us to the end of this day so Next week, when we pick up, we start with something pretty momentous here. Sounds great. <laughs> Day seven, the Friday. <laughs> so, so Alan, you got any, any thoughts on, on these days, or for that matter, uh, the stuff on the film in general that you want to say that you haven't had a chance to say yet? Probably not really. I mean, there was just so many fascinating things that uh, I watched that I didn't know. Talking about them jamming early on, I I found it very wild that McCartney was singing one of Lennon's songs off the White Album that he probably didn't even play on. I don't know <laughs> for a fact. I'm so tired or something. Yeah. Just sitting there yeah. jamming it, making fun of it. But it's like, you know, I don't even know if he played on that session uh, on John's song. So for him to like come back after that and know all the lyrics and stuff, I, fu- I thought that was pretty wild. <laughs> <laughs> so many things, man. But just a great documentary. I mean, what can you say, man? It's so awesome to see all that footage and get real insight now to things that we never had access to before. So it's mind-blowing 
these three days, you know, between uh, Paul writing Get Back, pretty strongly composing both Let It Be and Long and Winding Road, and then George's two new songs, it's like, there they are. Yeah. You know, all of them in, if not newborn stage, they're still pre-K, shall we say. You have to include Old Brown Shoe in that. I mean, that's a song that they got really close. Oh, another thing that I thought was cool, uh, just quickly, since we were talking about Maxwell Silver Hammer, (laughs) you always think of Paul being the bass player, but but it's George doing all that plunking of do 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 do, you know, (laughs) right? That's all George, and even Paul kind of acknowledges it. Hey, I like that, you know what I mean? So (laughs) I thought that was great, you know, because you just assume it's Paul coming up with these parts, and so that was very neat. But you'll notice he doesn't say that when John starts in on the bass for Let It Be. Right. (laughs) George, man, he had a good feel for the bass. I mean, you know, off back from Revolver and stuff. I mean, he was doing some stuff and, you know, he always. Yeah, he just didn't like playing it, unfortunately. Yeah. Like she said, she said, what a great bass line. That was George. That's awesome. Yeah. But, uh, well, and Helter Skelter was John. I mean, although, yeah. you know, which is also a great bass line, but it's it's a great bass line because it's it's almost John playing the bass like a guitar. You know, the do 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 Yeah, it's, it's sloppy good. Like, if it was perfect, it may not have had the same effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's just, it's the intensity. It's like the most rock and raw song trying to be the who or whatever. So, those just the... You know, notes going in and out of tune from hitting it too hard and just all the slot, man. It's just great. It's great. So, Robbie. all right. Thank you, Alan. You know, we're yeah. we're glad you could join us. This has been a lot of fun. Do you enjoy uh, talking with us on a couple days of the Get Back film this week? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love all things Beatles. So. That's great. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll bring you back sometime soon. Here, we're gonna have as many people as we can on January 9th. That uh, we'll see we'll see if you can be around for that as well when sure. we cover the big finale here. Sure. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, all right, John. You and I will be back next week. Uh, our special guest will be uh, Martin Marv Quibell, co-host of the P Two Podcast Blues Show, and you were just on his other show, Pods Like Us. We're becoming close friends. So uh, join us next week for that when, well, if you haven't watched ahead, I think you'll be surprised. See you then. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group and we could be reached at when they was fab and on gmail the opening theme was written produced and recorded by jay young kim beaster famine studios san francisco california sort of talk mm. about the challenges of, mm-hmm. of, 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 of using the audio from the time. Well, it's a difference between recording or performing in a, in a recording studio. We're, we're not, and even in a studio, they don't roll the tapes all the time, you know, but, you know, so, but when they're going to do, do something, the eight track rolls 
and and yet a lot of this is rehearsing. It's it's a big it's, it's a difference between okay, let's try and record something, but let's let's just rehearse. So when they're rehearsing, the film crew are filming them, and and, and that's great. That's again that you know that's that's where Michael needs to thanks because there's not normally a film crew filming them when they're rehearsing. So this is one this is a rare time when they actually have a film crew there. And they're being filmed rehearsing, but of course the film crew are only armed with a mono quarter-inch Nagra machine. So that's what they're recording the sound on. So, you know, most of it, I would say probably uh, three quarters, more than that, probably probably um, 70% of the audio is mono Nagra because it's just recording. You know, and then when you get the Savile Road, Lynn Johns hits the record button on the eight track um, from time to time, you know, and that and, and, we, have, and we have access to those eight tracks which is always a joy um so what we had to do is to try to make these quarter inch monos sound better and the other aspect of that of course is that because it's just a film crew with a microphone that nobody's on a mixing desk balancing the guitars and the vocals that's not you know because that's not really what the filming's about it's just you know it is rough rehearsal footage but of course you know you don't want to listen to hours of this horrible unbalanced, you know, the vocals are drowned out by the guitars. It's all that's the worst possible way that, that any band would ever want to be heard. And and, and also you just, it's really irritating to if anyone's listened to the get back bootlegs like I have for 50 for 40 years, it's like yeah, they, they're great for a while and then they become very difficult to listen to. And that's no different. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 